0: The From Day One podcast is brought to you by The Bridge. Visit us at thebridgebk.com. Hi, I'm Nick Bailey, and this is the From Day One podcast. With us today is Susan Povich, the founder of Red Hook Lobster Pound. Run by Povich and her husband, Ralph Gorham, the Red Hook Lobster Pound works with the best lobstermen in Maine to bring lobster rolls and seafood to New York City and beyond. They are one of the first food vendors at the Brooklyn Flea in Smorgasburg, Big Red, their big beloved lobster truck, was named best food truck in America by Daily Meal in 2013. Povich and Gorham came up with the idea in 2008 when they were eating lobster around their dining table in Red Hook. They had an empty storefront that they are unable to develop due to a contracting credit market, and they just returned from a visit with Povich's family in Maine. Povich was a successful lawyer at the time, but with a background in culinary pursuits as well, the idea wasn't completely far-fetched. They followed that spark when the Red Hook Lobster Pound opened in April of 2009, becoming the food talk of the year in the neighborhood. Since then, they've opened outposts in Washington, D.C., and Montauk. And like most Red Hook businesses, the lobster pound suffered serious damage during Sandy. After four months of rebuilding, they famously served their first post-hurricane lobster to the mayor. Susan, it's a pleasure. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, you know, you went to Harvard Law. You spent quite a few years as a lawyer. Um, Law to lobsters isn't exactly like a common job transition, as far as I know. Um, But that was actually the second time that you had gone from law to to restaurants uh, when you opened this restaurant. Is that right? You'd done it once before when you were younger?
1: Absolutely. Um, I graduated law school in 1988, and uh, I followed the traditional path. I clerked in the second circuit. I went to work for a big law firm, but I wasn't happy. Um, So after working 18 months at the law firm, I left to go to the French Culinary Institute and cooking school to sort of follow my passion. Uh, and that was the first time I transitioned. I went after the French Culinary Institute. I did some externships and internships around town. And I opened my first restaurant actually fairly soon after that in the village. It was called the Cake Barn Cafe. It was, as we like to say, a critical success and a financial failure because I had no idea what I was doing financially with a restaurant. I had only worked in kitchens or served. And I really didn't have a great understanding of how a restaurant p works. So... I ran that for two years. Um, The only good thing about it was that I did get to meet my husband at the time. Uh, And then I uh, sold it and went back to practicing law, um, which I did actually during the first internet boom. I did it out of my uh, apartment. I represented some amazing people. um, And it was really fun. I started my own law firm uh, specializing in the distribution of digital content. I worked with many great companies back in the day before we had broadband when we were all dial-up trying to make companies work. I worked with Russell Simmons for five years, sort of sitting by his side, starting a lot of companies. And then, um, you know, it was really great. I worked for my family, but there was always a calling sort of back to culinary endeavors, which was my passion. I mean, everyone has their passion. Uh, so,
0: so So, you'd never, you'd never forgotten. But, but back up a little bit, talk about... You know, you mentioned that you didn't you didn't understand the economics of restaurants or whatever when you first got started. Um, that's a really hard thing to understand. Um, do you understand them now? Like, talk, talk, let's talk a little bit about what they are. How how do you have to sort of think about a restaurant when you when you think about opening one, especially here in New York?
1: Well, every business has its sort of you know prime economic points, right? And a restaurant has a profit and loss. It's um, pretty standard. You know what I mean? You pretty much buy food, sell food. You have labor. You have insurance. You have rent. You have all these costs involved, but there are goals to get those costs to to ensure that you can actually make make profit. Um, it's very hard to make profit in the restaurant business. I did not know how to run a P L and back in the day. I was straight out of law school. I had not gone to business school. I had like studied, you know, legal philosophy. You know, I was sort of on a path to teach, not to run a small business. Uh, and it was hard, but I learned. Uh, what are, I, what
0: are some of the What are, what are some of the things you learn? Like, what are some of the secrets to making a restaurant work? How does the, how how should someone think about the math if that's something that they're thinking about doing?
1: Well, in a restaurant, and and by the way, this metric is changing because it used to have goals, but with the labor prices increasing in New York and with food prices increasing, uh, the old goals are not exactly what you what you can get to. Like for instance, my parents always said your rent should not be any more than 25% of your income. Like how many people is that really true for Mm -hmm. anymore? Um, So you've got something in a restaurant called prime cost. And prime cost is the sum of your food cost and your labor, all right? And those are your two biggest variables that you can adjust in the restaurant business. You can either make a less expensive food item or you can cut your labor or you can play around with it but those are the two sort of soft numbers that the owner and the chef and the general managers have the most ability to affect so for instance you know our managers get bonus if their prime cost falls below a certain thing I mean you can not affect your liability insurance that much maybe five hundred six hundred dollars but one one percent drop in food costs is profit directly directly to your pocket? It can be fifty, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, depending on your volume. So, you know, ideally, in full service restaurants in New York City, it used to be that like prime cost. You know, if you could get your prime cost at sixty percent, fifty nine percent, you were definitely going to make a profit. Uh, not so much anymore. It's fairly unrealistic with the labor, um, with the salary increases and the hourly increases, and the fact that food has increased in price tremendously over the last five years, uh, it's hard to hit 60%. But that's the ideal goal. Then you have uh, occupancy cost, which is your lease and your premise insurance and your utilities. And ideally, occupancy cost used to be a 10% number. That's also almost impossible to hit in New York City so restaurants that used to and then you have your soft costs your cleaning products your cost of goods your utilities you know your paper your insurance your marketing your advertising your menu your front of house supplies your back of house supplies all these I had no clue back in my first restaurant what these things were I thought you bought food you made it you sold it you paid people you paid your rent like I did not have them organized uh, at this point um, I actually wish I didn't have to focus so much on it and could get in the kitchen more, but uh, I definitely have a good working knowledge of the fundamentals of restaurant economics. These days in New York City, if your full-service restaurant can make a 6% net profit, you're lucky, and that doesn't include paying the owner. It used to be a 15% business.
0: Gotcha, so so you've practiced law for a while. Um, you're now living in Red Hook, right? And um, you know you're sitting around and you're talking about opening a restaurant. Again, what, was the, what were those conversations like? What was the thinking like when you, when you started thinking about doing it all over again?
1: Well, it was really all my husband's idea. We had bought a building in Red Hook that we wanted to develop into apartments. And he had a wood shop on the first floor of the building. Uh, and the Board of Standards and Appeals was not so inclined to let us change the zoning. And the credit markets were really bad at that time. Remember, this was the recession. This is 2008, 2009. So we were sort of looking at this building, and we went up to Maine with my family, and I have this, like, Yiddish-speaking, kosher-keeping family from Maine, Uh, and we all gather there. I grew up spending my summers there, and my grandfather was raised there, and we couldn't eat lobster that Thanksgiving because it was too cold, and we couldn't bring it into the house, and we didn't feel like going to a restaurant. So we picked up some lobster in Portland from friends, brought it back, and I cooked it, and it was delicious and it was really inexpensive it was way there was a lobster glut well there we have the same amount of lobster now but the demand is much higher but back then there was not a lot of high demand and there was a lot of lobster so my husband said why don't we just bring this lobster back to New York and change the building and open a lobster pound (laughs) and All we did back in the day just
0: just selling, you know, raw lot like lobsters. Selling live lobsters.
1: That's it. He built these tanks. He researched it. He found some guys up in Maine. He used to drive up to Maine twice a week and meet these guys on the pier, on the dock, and bring the lobster back. And that's how we started. That was in April of two thousand nine. Back in the day, in two thousand nine, one of you know, the internet was really focused around blogs. Right, there was no Insta, there was no social media, there was texting, and there were blogs. Because I had been so involved in the internet back in the day, I was very aware of the marketing power about what was going on. Uh, so I said to him, "You know, these guys have this blog called Brownstoner. Why don't I advertise your table business?" So I had like I was one of like ten people that bought like tile ads on Brownstoner like back in the day. And I said, you know, these guys started this thing called the Brooklyn Flea. Why don't I call them up and say, ask them if I can make lobster rolls and sell them under a tent at the Brooklyn Flea? So th- that's what I did. And starting in June that year, I pitched a tent and I was making lobster rolls. And had
0: you been had you been selling lobsters out of the out of the building? Oh yeah. That? How, but that's that seems like a really challenging business model, like. Hi we've got a, a building in Red Hook that you can't take public transit to very easily. We've got like live lobsters that are incredibly perishable. We don't have anything else here like it's not like you can get a salad and, and go home like you got you also got go to the grocery store. We're in Red Hook we're selling lobsters. like what were you successful were, you, were people coming to buy lobsters?
1: We were insanely successful. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. Uh, well first of all, we own the building. We also own our restaurant building. I mean, that's like rule number one of the restaurant business is buy the property. So we were in Red Hook. The thinking was, you know, Red Hook has always been one of those places that didn't quite gentrify, didn't quite make it, was always on the cusp. People love to write about it. It's the new hip neighborhood. And then New York Magazine comes in and goes, it's the definition of degentrification." gentrification uh, We loved our neighborhood. I moved to Red Hook 24 years ago. Um, We had Fairway and we had this crazy idea. So we built lobster tanks, we built out a little storefront, and it cost us 10 grand. I mean, it wasn't like we were risking our life savings on it. And we actually took money out on our home line to buy the lobsters and when we first bought the lobsters you had to reserve them like we wouldn't sell them like we only bought as much as we had reservations uh, how do we get reservations well I sent out emails to everyone I knew I hung signs in the neighborhood and I hate to credit one person but sometimes things just happen so there is a resident of Red Hook who's a fairly well-known person in the food journalism world named Sam Sifton who had been the food editor of the New York Times um, he now runs New York Times Food. He's been the national editor. I mean, he's a very influential person in food media. And he happened to live in Red Hook, and I didn't know him. And I got a reservation in from this guy, sifting at New York Times. And I said to my husband, I Googled him because I know who he was. I said to my husband, hey, this guy's coming in. He used to be the food editor of the New York Times. Just like play a cool make sure he gets really good lobster and send him on his way. So Sam Sifton comes in. My husband starts to jabber with him because my husband loves to talk and he's like the mayor of, you know, our neighborhood, our street. Uh, And Sam, who had spent all his summers in Maine, took our lobsters, which were really, truly the freshest lobster you could get in New York City. They were like one day out of the water. And he loved it. And the next thing I knew, he sent other media writers in. So literally just with the live lobster, I think we had 20 print articles in two months.
0: Interesting, Interesting. Yeah, like in
1: cranes, I mean, because it was such a weird concept. I couldn't say it was gonna work, but I didn't invest a lot of money. You know, it was like, if it didn't work, like, let's move on.
0: Uh, sort of the simplest business logic, right? Like lobsters are great, I know where they are, I'll go get them, and then I'll give them to you.
1: Right, and as I said to Ralph too, I mean, I've always been a fairly savvy marketer. I don't market as well as I used to because I get tired of like posting on Instagram. But (laughs) now like with the new algorithm, I'm like always on Instagram. Uh, But I said, you know, this is, he he said to me, he gave me this crazy idea. We went to bed. I woke up. I said, this is brilliant. He said, really? I said, yeah. He goes, what are we going to call it? I said, we're going to call it, the Red Hook lobster pound. Because if you spit in the street in Red Hook, media wants to write about you because it's this weird place that they've always been trying to figure out. Uh, And that really played well. I mean, over the years, Red Hook has become an international tourist destination. I get less write-ups in the media now, but I'm in like 50 tourist magazines and like SAS Magazine calls me. I mean, there's Red Hook has this sort of Uh, you know, in Europe, people looking for that off the beaten, you know, when you're traveling, you always want that place, right? That you just don't want to go to Times Square. You always want that place. So it attracts a certain sort of traveler from Europe and well, you know, everybody
0: knows, right? You go to you go to Brooklyn, right? If you're coming from Scandinavia or Northern Europe or something yeah. like that, you go to Brooklyn. You go, you get an Airbnb and bed and then you go to Red Hook for a lobster, right? I mean, that's
1: that's exactly the it's a, it's a thing, right? <laughs> I think it is a thing, and also in Brazil, apparently, I get a lot of Brazilians. Uh, I, my tourist traffic has fallen off this year, which has hurt us a lot, um, and it's just merely a result of the fact that our country is no longer so friendly to people from other places.
0: Right, right. So you're so you're you're selling lobster successfully now, um, and you. As you mentioned, you decided to think about uh, making lobster rolls, selling those at Brooklyn Flea. Um, Why Brooklyn Flea? Why not selling them out of your own? You got a storefront with people coming by. Why not there?
1: Well, the cost of putting in a commercial kitchen in New York City would mean that investment went from 10,000 to like 250,000. And I just wasn't ready to do that yet. You know, I knew how to build a kitchen. Uh, We were keeping it simple. Uh, So I rented a commercial kitchen. I rented space in a commercial Friends commercial kitchen in Long Island City. Uh, and operated out of that kitchen for like a thousand dollars a month as opposed to building my own
0: and that's how, and that's that's where you made the stuff that ended up at the at the flea
1: yeah I had my deliveries there actually when I first started the flea I made everything on site like I was mixing I mean the first so no street level lobster roll was being sold in New York you only had some really great ones at like Ed's lobster bar and pearls did not exist Luke had not opened yet like no one had opened there were no they're, you know, Now they're like 45 lobster roll companies. But So we announced I was gonna do it. And again, remember, this is back in the days of the blogs. It was like write-ups and tasting table, write-ups and thrill lists, write-ups and everything anticipating me showing up at the Brooklyn Flea because the guys at the Flea and I, we put out some announcements about it. And I showed up with my little tent and my two tables and my grill and there were 400 people in line. <laughs> And I had no idea what to expect. And some friends of mine who were lawyers who I practiced with, I'd worked at Universal Music, they came the first day and they were looking at me like, what the heck have you done here? I was like, I'm not sure, but I'm just going to feed it. I'm just going to keep feeding it. Uh, and that, and it was so frustrating because people would come to Red Hook looking for lobster rolls. They're like, oh, no, we don't sell them here. <laughs> so it took me two years uh, and my husband. First thing we did was buy a refrigerated van. You know that was the big expense that summer. We grew really slowly. Two years later, we decided to put in a kitchen, not like with fryers or anything. Just like some sinks. You know everything you needed to get your license. You know your your you know some sinks, a hand sink, refrigerator. It's all you needed. Like we had no cooking equipment. What was your
0: connection though before before you get to that like? You know, lobster culture in Maine is a really interesting thing, um, but just because you want to, I mean, going, you can buy lobsters in Maine if you know the right lobstermen and you have a truck that doesn't kill them. You can bring great lobsters to New York. Like, that's that's not a skilled job uh, by by itself. Making a great lobster roll, on the other hand, is not something that everybody knows how to do. I mean, that, that's challenging. Of course, the Maine lobster roll is like a classic institution. It's up there with like Texas Barbecue or right. something else. Like. How did you? How did you know how to make good ones? Like, how did you? How well, did you don't how did you, start? you remember?
1: I had gone to culinary school. I had worked for Von Gerichkin. I knew food. It wasn't like I forgot how to make food.
0: Yeah, but I mean, there's lots of people tried to make Texas barbecue in New York. It took them it took ten years before people started getting really good at it. I mean, just because so, you went to school doesn't mean you can you can make make a great. You know, I ate a lot food. of
1: lobster as a kid, and I had you know lobster rolls are all about like two ingredients: the lobster and the bread. <laughs> That's it. So I literally, you could not get top split rolls in New York City. There was a great Maine brand called JJ Nissen, which was basically the wonder bread of Maine. It's what I remember eating when I was growing up. It was actually owned by Hostess. Then Hostess went bankrupt. Uh, And my husband would bring back all the bread along with the lobsters (laughs) from Maine. So it was a matter of getting the right bread, uh, cooking the bread the right way, and, and having great lobster I mean, the fact is that at the quantity of lobster I use, I can't cook and pick on my own lobster. So I went up to Maine. I met with a lot of the processors. I found the best fresh meat I could find that I was very comfortable with. And we'd bring that down. And that's that's how we would do it. You guys did a I lot also, of stuff by hand, too, right? Like, wasn't yeah, the mayonnaise handmade yeah, and so and on? Yeah. And my husband loves to tell the story about coming into my house. And I, there was just mayonnaise from one end of the kitchen to the other because I insisted on making, like, a homemade mayonnaise. Uh And I was just trying to get it right. So, And the other thing we did, which is, I think, really important, and now everyone does, but I said to myself, you know, I like this main style lobster roll, but other people don't like mayonnaise. I said, let's make another style lobster roll just with butter, which no one was doing in New York City. And I literally went online and Googled it and found out that that's the style of roll they have in Connecticut. So I called it the Connecticut style and the main style. And now there are at least 150 businesses calling everything the same. I mean, I can't trademark the names of states, mm-hmm. but uh, I definitely think that, you know, I take a lot of responsibility for my own problems, which is the demand for lobster is way too high. There are a million lobster roll places thinking they can do what I did and what Luke did. And... Uh, some of them are doing it well, some of them are doing it not, but it's driven up my price of lobster. My my price of fresh lobster meat has doubled in the last five years.
0: Wow. Well, you guys don't just do uh, lobsters and lobsters anymore, too, right? And talk about yeah. the restaurant. So, and how what it's happened
1: was, so then what we did, we sort of had a, uh, our, we, we grew slowly, um, which I actually think has benefited us in the long run. We've been there nine years. And remember, we own that building. So, We first put in the kitchen to sell lobster rolls. You took them outside. People were sitting on their cars and in the sidewalk. And we said to ourselves, well, this is stupid. So we took my husband's wood shop, carved out a little area in the front, and put picnic tables there just so people could enjoy. And we had like a roll-up gate. You had to leave the food area, walk outside, go into the picnic area. We didn't have a bathroom. You had to go to the bathroom at the laundromat. We used to buy the laundromat paper towels. Uh... And then, um, and that worked well for a while. And then we put in a steamer. Then we started doing lobster dinners. Then we started expanding our menu, like years two, three, four. Uh, then Sandy happened and completely flooded us out. Um, and what I learned after Sandy between my home and my business was next time I'm not going to act so fast because I rebuilt exactly what I had, except I added a bathroom. Right. Which was fine. Uh, And, but I had to get it open, right? I had to get, I couldn't even think clearly about imagining on some, you know, ideation board what I wanted it to be. I've never been one of those peoples with the, like, boards. I'm like, very matter of fact, we got to get it done. Uh, And so we reopened with the bathroom, which was a big deal. We had a great year in business. But I think the biggest year we ever had was that year, and that's like $900,000, right? So we... We were still had our business at the smorgue. We were still prepping all the lobster for the flea in the smorg, which had grown at that time. We had the food truck at that time. We had a commissary across the street. So we, we had back-of-house operations that were funding. We were very big into the mobile market scene, which was very big at that time. Uh, I foresaw that it was going to decline, so I started to make some other plans, just because you can't open 50 mobile markets and expect the same traffic at each one. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a limited amount. Um, I had my food truck then, which was great. Uh, the food truck, year one, you know, a good food truck selling $20 items can do a million bucks. But by year six, it was doing 100000 because what happened in Midtown was there was no restaurants. There were no quick serve when the food truck scene really started and really happening. Uh, by the time five years later, there was like a good quick serve on every corner. Between Chipotle and Sweetgreen, and you know, it's like people didn't need the food trucks anymore because you had really great fast casual healthy food. And also, the city is very inhospitable to letting a food truck park on the streets of New York. Um,
0: What's that? What's that like? What? what why? What it? How does that work? Well,
1: because the more valuable the real estate got, the stronger influence the bids had, and people didn't want food trucks. They felt that you were taking their business, which. It's just frankly false because when you, the more restaurants, the more people, the more food trucks builds a better community. And everyone has a different, everyone wants something different for lunch. They don't want to go to the same place all the time. But the more people that will go to an area, if you have a Sweet Queen, they go, oh, you go to that truck, you get the Korean barbecue. I'm going to go to Sweet green. You know, people live in the street of New York. Food trucks help create that wonderful street culture. So there was a lawsuit many years ago. Uh, there is an old law in the books from 1960, 19, no, 1964 in New York that says you may not vend from a parking meter, right? 1964, there were very few parking meters in Midtown New York. Flash forward to 2015, there's a parking meter everywhere you are. So literally, the cops would, you would set up for lunch, I would have $2,000 of lobster on it, and they go, oh, you got to move. You can't vend from the parking. So there was no place to park because the city just were very, you know, they were lobbied really hard by the bids and the real estate developers. I guess the
0: premise being that the people paying rent in the buildings or think it's not fair. You're sitting there without having to pay rent. Sort Except of that, you that, are that paying rent.
1: You are paying rent to a commissary. You are paying rent to a kitchen staff. It's not like you're not paying rent. You can't operate in New York City without a licensed kitchen. You're paying rent. You're just not paying rent to that developer. Right. It costs a lot of money to operate a food truck. So, it you know, it just most. It back in the day with the food truck, there were some wonderful entrepreneurs like me. There were a ton of Ivy League kids. It was a great way to start, you know, start a business. See if you want. I mean, there was great people in the food truck business. I was on the um, help found the board of the New York Food Truck Association with like business graduates, and we were all looking at this as as part of developing culture, as part of growing our brands. Every single one of those people's gone. Every single. Most food truck operators now are rebranded halal trucks. Everyone that cared and that I worked with the city for so long to try to change these regulations, I would sit with you know everyone from the Department of Health. I remember one day 30 people in the room, every commissioner of every agency sitting and listening to us, nothing was done. So when you push that door so hard, it's like, screw this, I gotta make money and support my family, I'm done. So I still have my truck, I actually have my own mobile vending license on my truck And I just use it for catering and events. It went out in Midtown last week just because I hired a lovely woman who wanted to take it out. I was like, my break-even on the food truck's $2,000. If you go out there and you make $2,000... You can take the truck out again. And she did. She made $2,300, and people were happy to see us because our truck is really well-known. She hibernates. She, like, stays in the depot and goes out for catering and film shoots.
0: Right, right. Um, you didn't stop expanding, though. You pulled. You've started looking at other cities. You guys yeah, are in Washington. So, so my cousin
1: that. took the license in Washington early on to do a food truck. So he's got a couple food trucks in Washington because— our growth was huge. I mean, if in the first two years, the amount of like press coverage we got and my volumes and the, the money was great. Now, mind you, when you're running a quick serve restaurant in a building you own, you're making a lot of money. Right? A lot. You have very few employees. You know, your profit margin's like thirty percent. You know, it was crazy. My husband and I were looking at each other like we almost felt like drug dealers. Like we couldn't believe that we would go out to Smorgasborg <laughs> and sell the amount of lobster rolls for cash. And come home and count this money. I was like, this is insane. You know, and then we put it in the bank. The bank just goes,
0: smuggling the wrong direction nine ninety five, right? You had oh, a truck full of truck full of value. We cargo were just looking at each
1: other like this is crazy. And we were so clueless about it that like we didn't even have a money, like we were counting I was counting like a thousand dollars in dollar bills by hand. You know, like I didn't even know we didn't know what we were doing. Um, business-wise, but we did know one thing, and I did have some friends who were clearly having gone to Harvard Law. I had some friends in 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 experienced places, and they sat me down and they said, "Susan, now's the time to feed it. Don't go on vacation. Don't do this. Reinvest every dime you possibly can beyond supporting your family into your business and grow your brand. Feed it, feed it, feed it, feed it, and that's what we did." We reinvested and reinvested and reinvested so that like when I went to buy the food truck for $100,000, that was the money I had made at Smorg. Like I took, to this day, I'm 10 years into it, I have no debt except a credit line at a bank that I used for inventory, you know? So we fed it, we fed it, we reinvested, we reinvested, we reinvested. And that's, I think, probably the best thing we ever did.
0: What are some of your plans for the future? What are your, what's next for the Red Hook Lobster Pound?
1: Well, we, you know, we did. We must be doing something right because between 2016 and 2017, we dumped two million dollars in income because it was a lot of the markets. It takes a tremendous infrastructure to run. We looked really carefully at the business, and we were like, and we actually had a higher net in 2017. We dumped two million in income and made more money. And that says, that's what does
0: what is, what is dumped mean? You mean you, I mean, you backed out it. of some business? Backed
1: stuff. out of the markets, backed out of things we were doing. We just
0: what, like like the food trucks or the, like you mentioned, took or? the
1: food truck off the road, pulled out of these street fair market type of things, except for Smorgasbord, and just said, we're only concentrating on our brick and mortar. So what we did was we went into, okay, so four years ago, we're, I had a COO who came from the food truck world and was helping me manage all this mobile stuff. And we're looking at Red Hook. And we're looking at what's happening in Red Hook after Sandy. And the property values are skyrocketing and people are moving in. And we looked at each other and we're like, we gotta go full service. We gotta rip this thing apart. We gotta be here, we gotta be ready before Red Hook becomes what everyone thought it was gonna become. So it was a tremendous amount of money. It was $600,000 for me and my husband. You know, tore the thing apart, built a full service restaurant, change slowly got our customers on board with it and we opened and we were very successful again a lot more successful like we built that restaurant to be like a 1.5 million dollar restaurant max and like we've blown through that and because of that we're probably gonna have to renovate again because we made some stew when you build a restaurant it's also it's scientific like, Where the doors are, where the passes are, like the way you build it affects your labor. I have too many food runners because they have to walk too far to the kitchen, so that's two more people a shift. You know, it's it's very, very complicated, detail-oriented, scientific, well-worn system. You study places like Cheesecake Factory. Not necessarily their food, but like (laughs) everything, everything the way they do it. You study places like Balthazar. You study places... You go in and it's not like, oh, I want that light fixture. It's like, okay, how big's the service station? Where are they running the fries from? How many people do they have on staff? Because those are your soft costs. That's your prime cost, food and labor, right? That's your prime cost. That's what you can affect. The way you build your restaurant affects that. Um, And I'm not the best at it at all. I fail all the time. I make mistakes all the time. But I know at least what to look for and I try to learn from from every mistake, you know, that I had. Uh, and then I saw the, mar- so I cut out the markets and I got into the food halls early on, like when Vanderbilt opened. So I'm in two food halls. Uh, and then last summer, you know, my family moved to Rockaway nine years ago, half the year, so we live half the year in Rockaway. Um, just because I... You're like,
0: I a, you're like a snowbird within the five boroughs?
1: Absolutely. I, uh, I just love the beach. And owning a small business, I knew... I just needed another place. We live five blocks from our business. I just needed like a place to clear my head, and I knew we couldn't travel far because something is always happening. Like I can't tell you how many times we've sat down to dinner on Friday night with the family, and like one of us has to go back to Brooklyn. Uh, so I had been going to Rockaway. I've been surfing. I've been paddling. I was. I just loved the scene. I had friends that were you know out there, and. uh... You know, kind of like Red Hook, we got in right before it got crazy. Like, you know, I bought a house that I can never afford now, you know, and uh, I'm on the beach, I'm on the beach block. And I did a lot of mentoring of businesses out there. I worked with a lot of the young businesses, right as things were really starting to break and starting to happen. So last year, I decided I wanted to do something new and fun. So I opened a beach concession called the Rockaway Clam Bar, which is a little bit more, again, Lobster's really expensive, so my food cost is really high, so I really wanted to start to bring down that food cost, see how I could work with that. It st- sort of stays same in the beach thing. I wanted it to go low cost, just like I did in Red Hook. I wanted to go low cost, no investment, see how it works, hire good people, make great food, pay low rent, and see if this is a brand I could develop. I've looked at a lot of projects to open there, you know, in a restaurant, but I'm trying to get that foothold, establish that brand, Um, With the hopes of maybe doing a full service in Rockaway or in Long Beach or, you know, I I opened it in Midtown just a month ago. And it's surprisingly, it's the first restaurant I've opened that hasn't really gone gangbusters out the gate. So I'm like, okay, is it because no one knows Rockaway Clam Bar? Is it because people don't want to eat fried clams for lunch in Midtown? Like it's, you know, so I'm working on it. I'm pushing it. I'm pushing it. I'm pushing it. One thing you have to be in the restaurant business because there's so many moving pieces and because every single transaction revolves around making s- someone's immediate emotion. Think about it. Every single thing I do is going to result in an immediate re- em- emotion. You're going to have an emotional relationship to that food. It's immediate. It's not you taking that dress home and deciding that you don't like it when trying it on and then returning it. It's you don't have a brand feeling about Calvin Klein because the dress doesn't fit you. So, because you have these immediate emotions, you have to constantly be on it and there are a lot of moving pieces and you can affect those emotions in so many ways. If if somebody's food wasn't right, your server can make up for it. You know what I mean? If your server was rude, the food can make up for it. The manager can make up for it. So one of the things about like immediate emotions is, you know, you can work on it. You can change. If you're aware of it every single day, you can change. One of the things I like to say about, about our management team is that for like a casual restaurant, in Red Hook, we are highly self-critical. That doesn't mean I'm critical of my employees. That means like we are self-critical, critical constantly as a company. Every day we try to be better than we were the day before, um, and that's you know that's how we do it. I do have to say that one of the things I didn't have, you know, I think two years ago we had 150 employees. Is I had no employee management skills, none. I didn't know how to, I had never managed employees, but I would managed three lawyers. You know, it's like, so that's definitely the area that I think I am trying to, I have to learn from my managers and I'm trying to learn the most about because right now in New York, there's such a labor shortage in the restaurant business that we have to make people happy and people who might not have the skills we would ordinarily want, we have to teach them those skills, we have to train them, we have to bring them out, we have to we have to get that dishwasher out of the dish pit as soon as possible and on the line or as a busboy, um, you know, and we need to, you know, you need to work really closely and really carefully with, with every single employee and that's hard and that's exhausting and I don't like to do that. <laughs> I am, you know, my, my husband, my children, my managers, my friends will say I have like the compassion, you know, my, like the, all the compassion in my body and in my pinky because I'm task oriented. I like to get things done. Luckily, my husband has the biggest heart in the world. And so does my son. And they can talk me off the cliff. But you know, it took a long time before I could watch my kitchen, walk in my kitchen, and not only see problems and not only criticize. So I said to myself two years ago, Susan, when you walk in the kitchen, you're going to say, Hey, how you doing? Hope everyone had a good night. You know what I mean? Like, And it it feels fake to me. All this employee management feels fake to me. I feel like I'm manipulating people. (laughs) But it's kind of what you have to do. Um, And I've read books and taken seminars. I'm still not very good at it. Uh, It's just not authentically in me. That's why I have to hire people who are better at it than me.
0: (laughs) Well, that's fascinating. It's all about the people then.
1: It's all about the people.
0: Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Sure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to From Day One, how Brooklyn entrepreneurs got their start. This series is made possible by The Bridge, a news site dedicated to reporting on business in Brooklyn with help from Complex Ventures, a Brooklyn-based digital agency working with more-than-profit companies and organizations. For more from The Bridge, to learn more about today's guest or to listen to more episodes of From Day One, visit us at thebridgebk.com. That's T-H-E-B-R-I-D-G-E-B-K.com. From Day One is produced by Cora Feeder Steve Kapp and myself, Nick Bailey. Audio editing and post-production by Steph Derwin. Our theme music was performed by Jody Rockwell and the Amble Amps, And our founding sponsor was the Made in New York Media Center. Thanks for listening.